0: Good morning, if you would grab a Bible, let's turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke 10, where we'll be focusing our attention at least in the beginning of what we're going to be doing this part of our worship, Luke chapter 10, it is good to see you this morning, good to see we have visitors with us, thank you for being here, we want you to feel welcome, We're glad that you've joined us. We'd like to get to know you more, and if there's anything we can do to help you to know more about Jesus, what we're doing here, we'd love to talk to you about that. So please stick around for a minute. Let us talk with you after the services are over, but we're glad that you are here. I have a couple of things that I want to uh, mention before I get started with my part. Uh, First of all, I want to remind you that about one month from this weekend, on March 13th, 14th, and 15th, that weekend is our... Bible Workshop Weekend, that special weekend we do every year for young people. We're really looking at uh, like middle school through college age, 25 or so, uh, for young people. And uh, so I want you to be thinking about and praying for that. Uh, always we start on Friday night on the 13th with a singing that everyone is invited to. And uh, usually we have a, a really excellent worship time. And uh, then on Saturday, the 14th, will be the, the Youth Workshop. I, have not, I failed to mention that our theme for this year is going to be very interesting and timely. It is called Disconnect to Reconnect, and the idea is how do we place technology and factor technology into our lives, which is something all of us struggle with, our young people do, just as well as our older people, uh, but it's something that I think will be particularly helpful and relevant for our young people. And uh, so we have Brother Phil Robertson from Gainesville, Florida, who's coming to, to lead us in that study and several other who are, others who are teaching in that time. And then on Sunday, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Phil will be staying over and preaching for us in our regular Sunday assembly. So looking forward to that, be thinking about that. The other thing is I was asked to remind the ladies that the monthly ladies devotional will be this afternoon at five o'clock at the Walls house. So if you have any questions or need directions or anything about that, uh, see the walls about that. But uh, look forward to uh, our ladies getting together for that. Luke chapter 10, I want to read beginning in verse 29. Luke 10 and verse 29. It is a timeless story, compassion and service and love done to a stranger simply on the basis of need. I wonder how this would play out in America in 2020. I think, first of all, if we're going to picture this in America in 2020, the Samaritan has got to have a cell phone and he's got to be looking at his cell phone. I, I don't know if he's calling. I don't know. We don't usually use cell phones for that anymore, right? Okay, we're, we're looking at it and he's doing something. I wonder if he would even notice the guy half dead on the side of the road because his head is down. But if he does, I wonder, I wonder if he'd scoff and say something like, this is probably one of those homeless scams that I've seen. I wonder if he'd shake his head and talk about crime in this city, how bad things have gotten. I wonder if he'd say something like, you know, everybody wants a handout. But I wonder if he might not say. Again, you know, I I pay my taxes. I give sometimes to the Red Cross or the Salvation Army or all these different charities. And now i got to help this guy too? When does it end? You know, no matter how much we give in every other situation, when we have an opportunity like this man does, to show kindness and love to someone, and we fail to do it, then we fail to love. We do not love our neighbor. And I want you to think about this with me for a few minutes because what I want to point out this morning is that there are some things that can't be hired out. This is a tendency in our American economy. What we say, we call it outsourcing, We say the idea is that my time and my expertise is too valuable to spend on just everything. I shouldn't be doing just everything. I have a specialty. So if there's some little job that somebody else can do, I could just pay them to do that. It's worth more for me to use my time for what my specialty is. And that's all well and good in business. But that is something that has seeped into American churches. In churches, we hire out our work. We cut the check, and then we go focus on other things. And so there has been an incredible rise over the last century or so in what are called para-church organizations. Organizations like institutions and boards and homes and schools that say, we have a work. It may be part of your work, but we can do it better. And so churches will say, well, hey, let's just give them a check, and we're done with that. And it has seeped into our personal lives. I hope that we would not walk by the man who's half dead on the side of the road because we've already given, but we might hesitate because, I mean, after all, I'm not some kind of emergency specialty. I, I don't know how to deal with your wounds. Nah, somebody else needs to take care of that. Or we might say, you know, I know you need somebody to study the Bible with you, but I'm not an expert on that. Somebody else should do that. And so we begin to say, it's not my responsibility. And I want to stress this morning that there are some things that we cannot hire out or delegate that must be done by us personally. And I want us to think about how the Bible teaches us to think about our personal obligations. The first thing I would say about that is I have an obligation to serve others. Jesus' story really stresses that being a neighbor is something no one else can do for me. I have opportunities that only I have. Situations like the Samaritan, that when I come upon someone who is in need, only I can do what I need to do in that moment. Now, a priest and a Levite walk by the man. They fail in their obligation to serve others. Whatever their pretext is, they fail. And only the man who takes the time to do something himself is the one who shows love for his neighbor. It is not love to walk by on the other side and act as if there is no problem. It is not love to leave it for somebody else to do. It is love to take that man and bind his wounds and walk with him and take him to the inn and maybe pay money so someone can help him when it's beyond what you can do. But there is always the idea that this is my job because I'm the one here dealing with the problem. So Jesus is saying God expects us to love our neighbors. So it's something we have to do ourselves. Now, there are other ways we can love. I'm not saying that the only way we love or the only way we serve is doing what this man does. Certainly, we can give money in different ways, and we can pray for people, and we can help build relationships with other people, but at its most fundamental level, it is my obligation and no one else's to serve the people I come across who are in need. It's my job, and I can't pay somebody or tell somebody to do that for me. It just won't work. Let's go over to James chapter 1. James 1. James talks about this in terms of responsibilities that attend to religion. James 1 and verse 26. James 1 and verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion... Excuse me, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James is talking here about our tendency to hear the word and not do anything about it. And he talks about someone in verse 26 who thinks he is religious but does not bridle his tongue. So the idea is we think we're doing well but then we hear a word, a message from God about what we're doing... It convicts us and we do nothing. We don't bridle our tongue. And he says, this person's religion is useless. So the refusal there is the problem. I hear it. I know I'm supposed to do it, but I just don't. And then he talks about, well, what is pure and undefiled religion? In verse 27, he says, pure religion is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, it's serving other people and it's remaining pure. Now, this passage is stressing what each one of us does individually. It does not talk about churches doing this. This passage is not talking about orphans' homes, church support of widows, or things like that. You see, no matter what our church does or doesn't do regarding widows and orphans, I still have an obligation to do what James 1.27 says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep myself unspotted from the world. Especially I I want you to listen to me as I say this, because this is vital. When you read James 1.27, it means that I have an obligation to serve other people, not just to see to it that they are served. Can you hear the difference? I have an obligation to serve others. I do. Not just to make sure that they're taken care of, but to do the work myself. The point is service. The point is not just meeting the need. It's what am I doing in response to what God is calling me to do? What am I doing in response to the needs I see? God is not calling on us in this passage to solve the problem forever of orphanhood and widowhood. We're not going to be able to do that. There is more need in the world than we can ever possibly alleviate. He is calling on us to serve those that we know, that we encounter, who are suffering in our immediate vicinity. Now, that raises some uncomfortable questions, at least I hope it does. Questions like, just what am I doing to visit widows and orphans? And personally, I understand this text to put widows and orphans for all people who have some kind of special need or special loss. I don't believe widows and orphans are the only people that James is calling on us to serve to have pure religion. He is saying, wherever there is a need, you be there to visit and to take care of the need as you see it and as you have the opportunity. So I can't solve widowhood, but I can reach out to those who have lost someone, to those who I know who are in need. And here is my point. Some things can't be hired out. I can't look at James 1.27 and say, as long as I cut a check, I've done my job. He says, you go do it. There is service that is personal in this verse. Turn the page over to Titus chapter 3. Titus 3. I want you to notice as we read through, there are three verses I want to cover in Titus 3. And these verses all have a tone to them about what God is expecting from ...from disciples of Jesus? What does he want from us? Titus 3, I'm going to read verse 1. Titus 3 and verse 1. It says, "...remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities... ...to be obedient, to be ready for every good work." So we are to be ready for every good work. Now verse 8, Titus 3 and verse 8. "...the saying is trustworthy... ...and I want you to insist on these things... So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And then verse 14, Titus 3, 14. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All right, so here you have these passages. Be ready for every good work. Maintain good works. And then be ready to meet urgent needs. The tone here is, this is not about solving problems. This is instead about us doing good works. And that when situations arise, we need to be ready to do good works in those situations, just like the Good Samaritan, ready to do it. God wants us to keep our hands busy serving. So this is not about good being done in our name while we put our feet up and say, well, I took care of that. Hey, I wrote a check. It is instead about us doing the work. That's the tone of these texts. So I have an obligation to serve others, and some things can't be hired out. Second, I have an obligation to teach. We kind of talked about this in the lesson in the assembly, but I want to remind you that even in the New Testament era, there was not a class of people that were considered the clergy. These are the people who do the teaching, and everybody else just sits back, And lets the clergy do the work for them. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. I'll show you this here. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. Acts 8 verse 1 says, Saul approved of his execution. That's talking about Stephen. Acts 8, verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the people, the church is all scattered, except the apostles. If anybody, we might think, were the clergy of this era, it would be the apostles. The people who had that special connection with Jesus, and who everybody listened to their teaching... But notice what happens. The people are scattered, everybody but the apostles. And those, verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Not the apostles, they didn't go out preaching the word. That's not what it says. The people who were scattered, the people who are running for their lives, they went around preaching the word. These were regular Joe Christians, just like you and me. They were afraid. They ran for their lives because the persecution was so intense. They were scared. And what they said was, let's go preach. They talked about why they left Jerusalem. They talked about what they believed, who they were, and they taught. They preached the word. Now, please understand, this is not necessarily formal teaching where they said, oh, are you curious about why I'm here? Well... Let me stand up on a raised platform and preach to you about Jesus. It was the regular conversations that we all have with people in our lives all the time. And they taught about Jesus. You see, when ordinary people talk about Jesus, the good news spreads. And that's what Jesus does when he sends out the disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, you go and you make disciples. They are going to go teach, but they're not the only ones, because those disciples that they make are then going to make more disciples. Well, oh, I missed that one. Okay, I thought I had another passage here. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 2. I hope if you saw the third point, you forgot it, okay, because we're not there yet. Uh, but... Uh, In 2 Timothy 2 and 2, he says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Disciples make disciples. So, here's what I'm saying. As a disciple of Jesus, I have an obligation to teach. I am so thankful that this congregation supports me financially, me, Jacob, so that I can be continually devoted to the ministry of the word. Early churches did that for Paul. They sent money to Paul so that he could have his needs met. And he argues, I'm thinking of 1 Corinthians 9 here, he argues that those who preach the gospel have the right to live from the gospel, to be supported for their work. But it is important to say that when churches sent money to Paul so that he could be supplied while he preached the gospel, those churches didn't quit teaching. They didn't say, you know what? Paul is going to do all the teaching for us. I mean, after all, we sent them some money. Instead, that was just a part of what they continued to do. They would teach as they had opportunity, and they would help Paul as they had opportunity to help Paul. I want to say this delicately, but I want to be clear. This congregation does a great work. You generously give. And from that giving, we support men all over the world who preach the gospel. And from time to time, our elders will get up and tell us, about special efforts that men are doing, or they're going on preaching trips, or they need help with bringing Bibles to people. And this congregation and your generous support is what makes that possible. And you generously give so that I and my family have what we need as I preach the gospel here. And I want you to use me as someone who is a resource for you in the gospel, I want you to come to me. I want to be of service. I want you to study with me or bring your friends and family to study with me. I want you to ask me your questions. I want that. But please don't think that because this congregation supports me that you've hired out your teaching responsibility. Please don't think that's what we pay Jacob for. Because all of us have an obligation to teach other people. And I can't meet that obligation for you. I can't do it. I will teach as much as I have the opportunity to do, but I cannot teach for you. Now, it may be that you say, well, I I just don't feel like I'm capable of doing this. Or maybe I'm better at meeting people than I am at walking them through a gospel presentation. I understand that. And it may be that you have a different role that you want to play. Please, though, just don't neglect the fundamental picture of the New Testament that tells us that each one of us has a role to play in bringing other people to Jesus. And, you know, this is true on a church basis, too. Brethren have been very inventive about how to preach the gospel in other places. Sometimes, as churches, they've been willing to depart from the Bible pattern that we've been talking about of sending money to a preacher as he goes and preaches the gospel. Sometimes brethren have done something like set up a whole church, one church over an entire mission field. We're going to go preach in some place, and everybody just send your money to this church, and they'll take care of that. Sometimes we've had missionary societies that monitor and oversee, We'll, we'll take care of making sure these guys are still preaching what they should. I say all that to say, a lot of those practices, I don't believe are New Testament practices. But I believe they appeal to this tendency we have to say, you know what, let's just write the check. We'll tear it off and send it off. And you know what, we've done our teaching. It may be in Germany, it may be over in the Far East, but you know, we've done our teaching. And while we might not share the use of those institutions, brethren, we have the same possibility, the same temptation to say, you know what, I put my check in the plate this week, I've done what I need to do. I'm going to go do my own thing because that's just not my specialty. There are some things that can't be hired out. Third thing, I have an obligation to encourage. Okay, if you remember it now, it's okay. I have an obligation to encourage. Let's go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6. Galatians 6 and verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. There's a lot in this section. But verse 1 pictures a scene where somebody is caught in sin. And you brothers who are spiritual, you restore him. You put him back to rights. You encourage him. It is not encourage in the, the way we sometimes talk about encouragement where it's just saying kind words. Here it is challenging words. It's confronting someone. And he says you do it in a spirit of gentleness and you keep watch on yourselves, but, but you do that work. He says, you bear one another's burdens. You be there in the foxhole with your brother when he is in need. This is not a physical need. This is a spiritual need. And then he says something interesting. He says, the truth is, there is a danger that pride will creep into our service. And I want you to look at verse 4. He says, let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Isn't it interesting that he says... Each one of us is going to stand based on what we actually do. And there's a tendency to think that we're doing more than we are. To think we're better than we are. He says, watch out for that. Because there are things that you have an obligation to do... ...that are not about what your brother does at all. They're about your duty to God for him. Some things can't be hired out. And particularly, what strikes me about this idea... ...of going to confront someone and try to bring them out of their sin is that that is so personal. You can't do that in a text message. You can't do that and send somebody in your place. It's something that's so personal that you need to go do it yourself. I want you to go with me to James chapter 5. I think there's another similar idea here in James 5. In James 5 and verse 19, last two verses in the whole book, James 5 and verse 19, he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, James 5 and verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. He says someone wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, says or does something that turns him around. He says, when you do this, you have done a wonderful thing. Saved a soul from death, covered a multitude of sins. He's trying to motivate us to say, you need to be busy doing the work of encouraging someone, particularly someone who is wandering away from the Lord. That is a good work. And you can't get somebody else to do it. It's something all of us, someone is vague. All of us have the obligation to do that. Or Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day as long as, as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know, when we think about hiring out or outsourcing, we think that what's important is the job. You know, as long as somebody is encouraged, it doesn't really matter who does it. And at some level that's true, but in some level that helps us to sidestep our own responsibility. Some things require A personal touch that only we can provide. As I was thinking about this, I thought about parenting. You know, you could probably outsource most of the responsibilities that accompany parenting. And I started breaking it down. You know, what does parenting involve? Well, obviously, there's a lot of babysitting. Some of it is conversation. You got some food prep in there. You have a whole, whole lot of cleaning. Whole lot especially at our house. Little conflict resolution. You know, mix all that together. Hey, you got some parenting, right? And we could just have a different person do each of those jobs, right? And we could say, you know what? I- I'm sorry, I'm a little too busy to parent, but don't worry, we've got some people that are going to do all these things, right? Is that all that matters about parenting? Are you got all the jobs knocked out? Isn't there something else in parenting? Isn't it about a relationship and not just all the jobs getting done? that you're trying to build something, you're trying to grow a person, and there is something that you cannot just do through proxy. You have to do it as a parent. You have to be there. You have to do the correction and the teaching. You have to do the caring and the cleaning and the babysitting. It's for you so that you can build a bond with that person. And in the same way, I encourage my brothers, not because there's a job to be done, but because I love them, And there is a bond that only they and I have. So how do we try to hire this out? You may be wondering, well, how do we try to hire out encouragement? Well, it's like this. We ascribe it to the elders or the deacons or the preacher. I mean, that's their job. Whether that's a weak brother or a missing brother or a disorderly brother, we say, you know what? Somebody should take care of that. I mean, it's not my problem, but, I mean, the elders, isn't that their job? Isn't that what they do? I want to remind you that the passages we've looked at don't refer to elders at all. Galatians 6.1 says, you who are spiritual. James 5 says, if anyone turns him back, someone turns him back. These are things that are all of our obligation. Now, they are certainly the obligation of our elders and our deacons and our preachers, But that's because we're all Christians, and all of us have an obligation to encourage. No one can do that for you. That is your obligation, and some things can't be hired out. And the last thing I want to talk about is I have an obligation to study. Let's go to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. Acts 17 and verse 11 talks about the Jews in Berea. Paul went there. Acts 17 and verse 11. Now these Jews, it says, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So these Jews took seriously the obligation they had to examine Paul's words and then to examine Scripture. They wanted to see if these things were true. They checked him out. They were eager to hear the Word. After all, he was saying this is God's message, and they wanted to hear from God. But then they did the strenuous mental work of examining the Scriptures daily. Day by day, they went in, and they uncoiled those long scrolls and tried to find where is the reference Paul is making? Does it really say what he says it's saying? Could there really be the Messiah in these verses? They were so serious about it that they kept doing it day after day after day. And it's not a surprise that many of them believed because they were eager to check on whether these things were so. I want to remind you that God calls us to this. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what's good, abstain from every form of evil. Don't despise prophecies, things that are purporting to be from God, a message. Don't despise it. Instead, he says, test it. And if it's true, hold it fast. If it's bad, if it's evil, abstain from it. Don't have anything to do with it. Test it all. The danger is that we take some, some person, like the preacher, like Paul, and we think, you know what? I mean, we pay him to study. I mean, what does he do all week anyway? We pay him to study. And then, you know, Sunday he'll get up and he'll, he'll tell us what he studied. That sounds good to me. I mean, after all, you boil down those hours of study in about 30, 45 minutes. That's pretty good. That way we don't all have to do it, he just does it for us. Well, what's wrong with that? First of all, you still have an obligation. I'm going to study and do the best I can to preach what I understand Scripture to say. But that doesn't change your obligation. The Bereans didn't say, well, Paul said, I mean, Paul's a nice guy. Might as well trust him. Instead, they studied and examined to see whether these things were so. I also want to remind you that I can be wrong. I don't think it happens very often. (laughs) Yeah, they got a good laugh. Um, I can be wrong. I can be wrong. Scripture repeatedly, again and again and again, warns us about the danger of teachers who have ill motives or teachers who are just wrong. Of course, I think I'm right, but I've thought that before and I was wrong. So, don't trust me. Test the message. That's your obligation. I can't do it for you. But especially if if I give up my obligation to study, How am I going to share with and teach other people when all I have is the product of somebody else's study? All I have is I'm taking their word for what this says. You know, sometimes we'll talk about Catholicism and how in Catholicism there is a long history of keeping the people from the Bible. And how in Catholicism we didn't want to answer the questions from Scripture, just from church tradition. And yet can't we see that we're dangerously close to that? When we feel like we just want someone else to interpret the Bible for us. That system that keeps us from a direct connection with God. Instead we have to go through whatever person is teaching or studying for us. Instead I want to remind you this is how congregations grow. What happens is we study and evaluate and then we challenge and sharpen one another. So that we get closer and closer to the truth. I can't study for you and I can't grow for you. Because there are some things that can't be hired out. That's not the way it works. Well, I want to say, I believe there is a benefit to us doing our own work. Not expecting someone else to do it for us, not even paying them to do it for us, but doing it ourselves. When we do our own work, we grow. When we do our own work, we have to be the ones figuring out what it means to serve, We are the ones humbled by lowering ourselves before someone. When we do our own work, we have to teach, which means that we've got to know how could I present this in a way that would make sense to me and to them. There is growth in that. I I, I talk to these men that are teaching our Bible classes, and all the time they will say, when they're in the middle of teaching a Bible class, it is a time of growth for them, because when you have to teach, you have to grow. It's good for us. Doing our own work helps us grow. When we have to be the one encouraging or even bringing a brother back, it strengthens us because it shows us that other people need us and it kind of shows us where we are. These are things that are good for us. Doing our own work helps us because we are personally invested. Suddenly, there are things that I know I want this because I've had to work hard to do it. So... If I just give a check and send it off to somebody else, I don't have any personal investment. That's somebody else's work, and they're taking care of it. But when I do it, I care. I'm invested in a local church. I'm invested in my brethren. I'm invested in the Word. Doing our own work helps us because we get closer to each other. You know, when we do work together, there's a bond that's formed. I love this when I see this with our workshop. I see this with our VBS. When we spend time together and we're working There is something special about it. There's something unique about it. Because we are together and we're doing the Lord's work together. When we do our own work, we get closer. I want to say, I'm almost done, don't worry. I also want to say just a word about churches. I've mentioned this a couple of times throughout the lesson. The Bible describes local churches as autonomous, which is a big word for we take care of our own business. We have our own leadership. We make our own decisions. We have our own work. Now, when a church is autonomous in the sense of the New Testament, it doesn't mean we're hostile to other groups. That's not the idea. The idea is we just know we have our work, and other people have their own work. Other churches have their own work. I understand that there is a limit to what we can do as a local church. I mean, we're only who we are. I also Churches have gone beyond what the New Testament actually teaches local churches are to do. We're not comfortable with that. And we want to follow the pattern of doing what New Testament churches did. And we're going to do that in this congregation. But I think we also need to be taught to think locally about our work, about our leaders, about the things we can do. What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? How can we get better? I think we need to be taught, instead of listening to the plea of globalizing and nationalizing and moving into some kind of hierarchy, we need to be taught about the New Testament's perspective, that we have our work. Just like as individuals, we have our work. As small as it may be, we have our sphere. So also as a congregation, as small as it may be, we have our sphere. And our work that we can do. And to be content by doing what God calls us to do in the situations we encounter. In... Let's trust God and do the work he's given us individually and collectively. Now there might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation. We haven't talked this morning about what you need to, bec- need to do to become a Christian. But this is the time we have set aside at the end of our service to invite anyone who is ready to respond to the gospel invitation to Jesus' call, to come out of their sins, to turn away from those sins, to be baptized into Christ, to have those sins washed away, to begin a new walk with God. And if you're ready to do that this morning, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.